Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Good morning, church, in-house and online. In-house and online. Yeah, I tell you, I love, I just love Christ the King Sunday. I, um, ten years ago, I didn't even know it was a thing, <laughs> but now I do. And, you know, I love it like, you know, it's, you know, these Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday, first Sunday in Advent, which is next Sunday, and Christ the King Sunday because it's the culmination of our grand telling of the beautiful story of Jesus Christ. So, as we come to the end of ordinary time, that's what we've been in. As we come to the, it's no ordinary time, I know that, but as we come to the end of ordinary time on Christ the King Sunday, and just before we enter into Advent next Sunday, we are today concluding an 11-week journey through Genesis and Exodus in the Old Testament in search of Jesus Christ. Today's sermon text comes not from Exodus, but from Deuteronomy. That's Moses' book-length farewell sermon. And in that sermon, he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like unto me from among your own people. You shall heed such a prophet. My sermon today is a prophet like unto Moses. Moses was the great prophet who led Israel out of Egypt, gave them the law, and formed them into an alternative society based upon the worship of the true God and just treatment of neighbor. At the end of His life, Moses gave this long farewell sermon that is the entire book of Deuteronomy where he said that God would raise up another prophet like him. Eventually, this develops into messianic expectations. So when the priests from Jerusalem tried to ascertain the credentials of John the Baptist, they asked him, are you the prophet? That is, are you the prophet like unto Moses, who is to come. John the Baptist denied it, claiming only to be a voice crying in the wilderness. So who is the prophet like unto Moses? Well, Peter tells us in his second sermon. Not long after Pentecost, Peter and John went up to the temple at the hour of prayer. And there at the gate called Beautiful, they encountered a a lame beggar, a man born lame, and he was begging. And Peter said to the lame beggar, silver and gold have we none, but such as we have we'll give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the man was healed. And entered the temple walking and leaping and praising God. Well, this got people's attention. And a great crowd gathered. 
Acts chapter 3, verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran to them in the portico called Solomon's portico, utterly astonished. When Peter saw it, he addressed the people. You Israelites, why do you wonder at this or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The God of our ancestors has glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you handed over and rejected in the presence of Pilate, though he had decided to release him. Jesus is the continuation and the culmination of what God began long ago with Abraham. Jesus is not plan B. That God's trying to do something with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the ancestors of Israel, and it doesn't work, so he throws a Hail Mary to Jesus. No, no, no. It's not that at all. This is one continuous project of salvation that begins with Abraham, culminates in Jesus. Verse 14. Peter says, but you rejected the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer given to you, Barabbas. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. So sinful humanity killed Jesus, but God raised him from the dead. Don't confuse it. Verse 16, and by faith in his name, his name itself has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given him this perfect health in the presence of all of you. All right, so the man has been healed, and Peter says it's by the name of Jesus. He goes on, and now, friends, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. In this way, God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets that his Messiah would suffer. Repent, therefore, rethink everything, and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah appointed for you, that is, Jesus who must remain in heaven until the time of universal restoration that God announced long ago through his holy prophets. That's the blessed hope. That's the ultimate blessed hope. The reconciliation of all things universally in Christ. Hallelujah. Verse 22. Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you from your own people a prophet like me. You must listen to whatever he tells you. So who is the prophet like unto Moses? Jesus is the prophet like Moses, but greater than Moses. Think about how Jesus and Moses have similar stories, but also note how Jesus is greater. Both Moses and Jesus escaped the murder plots of paranoid kings. Pharaoh ordered all of the Hebrew babies that were born to be thrown into the Nile, but Moses escaped that. Herod ordered all the baby boys under two in Bethlehem to be slain, but Jesus escaped that plot. 
Both were called out of Egypt. Both had a time of spiritual preparation in the wilderness. Moses for 40 years, Jesus for 40 days. Both delivered a new law from a mountain. Moses on Mount Sinai, Jesus on the Mount of Beatitudes. But note how Jesus is greater. Jesus goes up on the mountain, the Mount of Beatitudes, like Moses going up on Mount Sinai. And he begins to give a new law. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. And he gives the Beatitudes. And then he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill what they were always trying to do. And then Jesus begins to say repeatedly, You have heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say to you. Well, where had they heard it said in the law of Moses? You've heard it said in the law of Moses, but I say to you. He says things like, you've heard it said, you shall not kill. But I say, don't even be angry with your brother. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say, don't even look at someone with lust. You've heard it said, well, men, if you get tired of your wife, at least give her a certificate of divorce when you put her away. You got to make it official. Jesus said, men, stop doing that altogether. Jesus says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, turn the other cheek. And when he gets to the end of his sermon, we're told the people were astonished. Because who could dare to go beyond Moses? The prophet like unto Moses who in fact is greater than Moses. A little while later, Jesus takes three disciples, Peter, James, and John, takes them up on a high mountain, traditionally Mount Tabor. And while he's up there praying, he's transfigured, and his face is shining like the sun in its strength. And there appear on the mountain with Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, the representatives of the law and the prophets. Now, you might remember, if you know your Bible well, you might remember that Moses never actually made it into the promised land. He led Israel out of Egypt through the wilderness of 40 years, got right to the border, but didn't get into the end zone. Died and buried on Mount Pisgah by God himself. Never made it into the promised land. But now, at the transfiguration... Moses finally gets there. And he gets there to hand everything off to the one who will fulfill all things. So that when Peter says, oh, this is marvelous. Let's build three tabernacles, one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus. The voice from heaven said, no, you shall do no such thing. This is my beloved son. You'll listen to him because Jesus is what God has to say. And the three disciples fall to the ground, overwhelmed. And when Jesus came and laid their hands on them, laid his hand on them, he said, Fear not. And when they looked up and around, they saw no one but Jesus only. Because now all things are being fulfilled in Jesus. Another time, when Jesus was in Jerusalem, some scribes and Pharisees brought a woman to Jesus who had been caught in adultery. 
And they said, teacher, Moses in the law commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Of course, this is a trap. They think they've got Jesus one way or the other. There is the law. I can show it to you. Moses does give a law. Adulterers are stoned. And here's an adulterer. Moses says, the Bible says, stone such people. What do you say? And Jesus doesn't say anything. You don't always have to say something. He just knelt down and he wrote something in the dust. But they persisted. And Jesus finally stands up and says, all right. We'll do it this way. Let the one among you without sin cast the first stone. And with that, Jesus breaks the demonic mob spirit. They could no longer act like a mob because Jesus calls them into personal, individual self-reflection. They have to act as a one, not as a mob. All right. You want a stoner? Let the one among you without sin throw the first stone. And beginning with the oldest down to the youngest, one by one, the mob was dispersed and they left. And Jesus is left alone with the woman. And Jesus said, where are your accusers? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, sir. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Think about the prologue that John gives to his gospel. He tells us in John 1.14 that the word became flesh. Now Moses gives the word. He gives the law. It's in stone. He carries it down from Sinai. The law engraved upon tablets of stone. But now the word has become flesh. The word is not inscribed in tablets of stone. The word, the logos of God, has become a human being, Jesus of Nazareth. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, lived among us, tabernacled among us. And John says, we beheld his glory and his beauty as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And of his fullness we've received grace upon grace. The law came by Moses. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. It's the only begotten Son near the Father's heart who has finally and perfectly and fully revealed who God is. Moses, we're told in Hebrews 5, was faithful as a servant in the house. But the writer of Hebrews says Jesus is greater because he's the one that built the house. In other words, Moses was faithful in the task that God called him to within creation, but Jesus is the creator. He's not the servant in the house. He's the builder and the master and the owner of the house. All right, let's see if we can get the big picture. Moses led Israel out of Egypt And gave a law to form them into an alternative society. A society based upon the worship of the one true God and just treatment of neighbors. So thus the Ten Commandments. The first four have to do with how we're going to relate to God. 
You're going to worship only this living God, this one God, this true God. No other gods, just one God. Of course, that was new, that was novel, that was unheard of. All the nations worshiped a multitude of gods. But the first commandment is, you'll have no other gods. And so you won't have any need for any idols, no idols. No other gods, no idols. Keep the holy name holy, keep the sacred day sacred. That's the first four. It's going to govern worship, formation and worship. And now we've got to learn to relate to those around us. First one has to do with our parents, the first people we encounter. Honor your mother and father. Then we move on to neighbors. So, so number six, don't kill your neighbor. Number seven, don't commit adultery with your neighbor's wife or husband. Number eight, don't steal from your neighbor. Number nine, don't lie to or about your neighbor. And number 10, don't covet your neighbor's stuff. Now, this may sound very ancient to you, the Ten Commandments, lost in the midst of ancient time. But understand, this law is something new emerging in the world. A world that is formed by pagan idols. And so a new kind of people are being formed. Now, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, Moses does not lead them in, but Joshua leads them in. Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus. You understand, Joshua and Jesus have the same name. We say them different, but they're actually the very same name. Joshua, in the Old Testament, in English, we say Joshua. In the New Testament, we say Jesus, but the same thing. We'd get confusing if we didn't, I suppose. But Jesus led them into the promised land. And then for the next two centuries, 180 years to be precise, Israel was governed and led by judges. From Joshua to Samuel, 180 years. Judges, not kings. Not kings with palaces and royal courts and all of that business, no. This is a different society. And they're led by judges who live humble lives. They live like the rest of the people. They're not bedecked in gold, sitting upon thrones and ensconced in palaces. They, they just live among the people. And they're considered wise, and it's not hereditary. It's just the Spirit of God identifies this one's going to be a judge. One of them was a woman, Deborah. Uh, there, there were some scandals along the way. Samson, you know, there's that story. But most of them were pretty good. From Joshua to Samuel... 180 years. But in the days of the prophet judge Samuel, the people said, you know what? We want a king. And why did they want a king? We want a king because all the other nations have kings. Well, but that's the whole point. You're not supposed to be like all the other nations. You're a peculiar people. You're a chosen people. You belong to God. You have one king and it's God. And then you have judges, you know, to help navigate some things. But you, you don't, you're not supposed to have a king. They say, yeah, but we still want one anyway. And God told Samuel to tell them, you're not going to like it. If you get a king, here's what's going to happen. The king is going to take your sons and put them in his army. He's going to take your daughters and put them in his harem. He's going to take your lands and make it his. He's going to take your money and build a bunch of palaces. And they said, yeah, but we still want one. Because everybody else does. 
And so finally God said to Samuel, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. Go ahead and give them their stupid king. And the first king is Saul, son of Kish. He had about one good year. And then he progressively became worse and worse and worse until at the end of his life, he is a psychotic, paranoid man clinging to power. It's pitiful. The next king is David, son of Jesse. Now, David becomes the archetype for a righteous king. And that's why one of the titles for Messiah is son of David. But this is, as long as we read the Bible, kind of squinting real hard. You know, I mean, you can see, if you squint right, you can see David as the righteous king, but he was actually far from righteous. If you don't believe that, ask Uriah the Hittite. Yeah, David stole his wife and then killed Uriah. But he's the, still the kind of the archetype for a righteous king. After, after David, Solomon succeeds his father, and Israel reaches the apex of glory, that is, world of glory. This is what Israel thought they wanted. Because, you know, it's glorious. He's got a, I mean, he took seven years to build the temple. It took 14 years to build his palace. His palace was actually far more grand than the temple. Um, year by year, the revenue coming into the royal treasury is 666 talents of gold. Yes, I just said 666. That's the revenue coming into the royal treasury, 666 in solid gold. It's the apex of glory, but it's worldly glory because what in fact has actually happened is Solomon has recreated Egypt in Israel. They're no longer a peculiar people. They're just a second-rate Egypt. I mean, really. Complete with a standing army, which they were not supposed to have, with harems, which they're not supposed to have, with Egyptian princesses. Remember, he had 700 wives and 300 combines <laughs> or something like that. Then he has temples in Jerusalem built to the gods of Egypt. And finally, the greatest act of betrayal of all, he has Hebrew slaves for his building projects. Hebrew slaves. He's recreated Egypt in, in Jerusalem. I just always have this fantasy of like the ghost of Moses appearing unto Solomon. Saying, excuse me, but what the hell? You just, you just, you've completely undone the whole vision. You know what I had to go through to get these people out of Egypt and now you put them right back in Egypt. Well, from then on, for the next 386 years, 
The kings of Israel and Judah are almost a complete disaster. You get the odd good king here and there, but they are far and few between. And so for the next 386 years, from Rehoboam, Jeroboam, the divided kingdom, all the way finally to Zedekiah, you have nothing but mostly scandals, idolatry, injustice, immorality, palace intrigues, murder plots, It's all as wicked and sordid as anything you'll have in the history of Egypt, Babylon, or Rome. It's just another perverse game of thrones. So that by the end of the first century B.C., and I've skipped over the exile and the return, but by the end of the first century B.C., you have the morally corrupt King Herod as the king of the Jews. So that at this point, we could say Moses' vision for an alternative society of fidelity and justice seems to have completely failed. But that was when a prophet like unto Moses was born in Bethlehem. I'm ready for Advent. What child is this? When the fullness of time came, Jesus began to preach the kingdom of God. That is, the kingdom that is heaven's alternative to all of the ways of arranging society and nations and kingdoms and governments around the world. All of those come from the world. They are the world. Love not the world, we're told. But there is a government that comes not from the world, but from the heavens, and it comes down from God. And this is what Jesus is announcing and proclaiming and preaching and living. And on Good Friday, Jesus was crowned King of the Jews. That is his coronation. That is the true coronation of the world's true king, Good Friday. And on Easter Sunday, God vindicated Christ in resurrection. Then Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father where he rules the nations. Jesus is Lord. We're not waiting for Jesus to be Lord. Jesus is Lord. You say, well, not everybody knows that. Yeah, I know. Not everybody believes that. I know. We got, we got to get people, we got to get non-Christians to believe that Jesus is Lord. Come on, man, we got to get Christians to believe Jesus is Lord. Right? Because they're all caught up with, you know, who can be our king? We have no king but Caesar. No. Jesus Christ is Lord. And on Christ the King Sunday, we confess that the king and his kingdom is among us. That's what Jesus said. The kingdom of God is among you. Not within you. Not within, inside you, singular. Jesus says the kingdom of God is among you all, plural. That when we gather in the name of Jesus, when we come to a table like this, when we proclaim the gospel together in this gathering, the kingdom of God, the reign of God, the rule of God, the politics of God is among us right here. And we live according to that. Let the world do what it will. We are already embodying the reign of Christ here and now. Yes, this thing culminates. Yes, eventually every knee will bow and every tongue confess, but we're not waiting for that moment. 
Because we have come to believe now. And we live according to the king of kings under his jurisdiction and reign and rule now. Now this kingdom that we confess is among us in the name of Christ is not like the kingdoms and nations and governments of this fallen and broken world. The kingdom of heaven is God's alternative society of fidelity, fidelity to God alone, and justice, treating the neighbor justly. Remember, Jesus is not plan B. Jesus does not come to say, well, that whole business with the law, we're going to scrap that. No, Jesus comes and says, we're going to fulfill it. What Moses and the prophets were always aiming toward, that's what we're going to live. Fidelity and worship to God, just treatment of the neighbor. And so now we are judged by the king on how we treat the very least among us. Did you hear that in our gospel reading today? Those are the words of Jesus about the king. Now, because the reason we're going to be judged by the king on how we treat the least among us is because our king walks among us disguised as the least of these. You ever hear these kind of, you know, medieval tales of the king who would leave the palace and disguise himself and go live as one of the people? Well, apparently that's what our Lord is doing. That he walks among us disguised as the least of these so that we are judged by how we treat these least among us. Christians are called to worship Christ as our only king. This is our only king. We're we're called to worship Christ as our only king. It isn't like Jesus has, well, you know, we're we're trying to have the kingdom, but it's... I'm going to take a break. I'm going to go off and sit with my dad for an indeterminable amount of time. And when I come back, you know, we'll do something new. But you all just carry on as you always have. And fight among yourselves and have the governance of this world and see who can get control of Caesar's sword. No, Jesus is not saying that. In fact, the ascensions of Christ is not the absence of Christ. It is Christ, as we heard at the end of our reading from Ephesians, Christ now fills all things everywhere with himself. And so where where are the heavens? The heavens aren't the distant place. The heavens are a different space. But it's all right here. Jesus' ascension is a couple of things. It's not an explanation for the apparent absence of Jesus. It is, number one, the promotion of Jesus to the oval office of the universe. And number two, it is now the presence of Christ universally accessible. The Christ is everywhere, filling all things everywhere with himself, Ephesians 1.23. And so we who are baptized have confessed that Christ is our king, and what we need to be doing is saying, okay, we're going to live right now, presently, in this moment, according to kingdom ethics. If the world doesn't do it, well, that's what we expect of the world. We expect the world to be whacked. We expect the world to pursue the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. We expect the world to be all interested in power and money and you know, that sort of thing. But we live in a different kingdom. We live in the kingdom of Christ. And we have a different ethic. 
And so we prioritize because our king tells us this is a basis for evaluation. He tells us, I want to know how you treat the poor, the sick, the immigrant, the imprisoned, the overlooked and forgotten. Because I identify with them. And as much as you do it unto them, good or evil, justice or injustice, if you treat poorly the poor and the sick and the immigrant and the imprisoned, then you're treating me poorly, says the king. On the other hand, if you treat with neighborly justice and compassion the poor and the sick and the immigrant and the imprisoned, that's how you're treating me. And, it, and it, it determines whether we go into the life of the age or the fire of the age. The fire of the age, you know, that's what it actually says. Eon means age. Christians are called to worship Christ as our only king. And in response to that, we seek out the poor, the sick, the immigrant, the imprisoned, the forgotten, the neglected among us because our king knows them and calls them his brothers and sisters. Amen and amen. Stand up with me. And in just a moment, we're going to come to the king's table. Do you remember that story from the Old Testament? Maybe it's obscure to you. I don't know. That there was this young man, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, and could be considered a rival to now the, the house of David. But David has compassion on this young man who, who was injured as a child and became crippled. And he's living in Lodabar, which is, you know, not a good place. And King David becomes aware of this, and he says, I want you to go to Lodabar, bring that young man to me, because he's going to eat at my table. I'm going to care for him. I'm going to provide for him. I'm going to show him kindness for the rest of his life. You and I are, in all of our various ways, it differs from person to person, but in, all, in some way we're all a Mephibosheth. We're all broken somehow. And the king has summoned us to his table. Not to condemn us, but to invite us to sit at his table and to receive of his infinite kindness. And so we're going to come to the table of the Lord and receive his kindness. The kindness of our king that gives us eternal life. Join with me in confessing our Christian faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, 
and the life everlasting. Amen. Join with me now in confessing our sins before a merciful God. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, your sins are forgiven. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love Him and for those who want to love Him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come because it is the Lord who invites you. It is His will that those who want Him should meet Him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you.